We're trying to conduct a serious scientific investigation. Science, logic, reason. Do you have any hard data? Now, that's what I call science. You're listening to That's What I Call Science, the weekly radio show and podcast bringing you big ideas from the little island, Tasmania. My name's Dr. Neve Chapman and I'm joined by my guest, Dr. Andrew Ottaway today. Our show is proudly recorded in Lutruida, Tasmania, and I'd like to begin today's episode by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we're recording, the Palawa people, and the traditional owners of the land on where you are listening. On behalf of everyone, I pay my respects to elders past and present. Just so everyone's aware, we're going to be talking about some um, potentially traumatic things in this section. So uh, just be aware that this is a content warning that if you are distressed, you can check out Beyond Blue or Lifeline for additional support. So listeners, I think you're really in for a treat today because we don't often have a clinician come on the show and I'm biased because I love medicine and everything about it. So I think it's going to be a really excellent one, but we're also talking about something that's um, someone who's based in, on our small island doing something that's really big in another part of the world. So Dr. Andrew Ottaway studied at Flinders University and had a degree in medicine in 1994 and then subsequently went on to study anesthesia and his clinical interests include obstetric anesthesia and regional anesthesia. He also has a wider interest in global health, particularly maternal health and the global burden of surgical disease. And in 2017, Andrew established Health Volunteers International with the mission to improve quality of healthcare in sub-Saharan Africa through medical education and capacity building with a particular focus of improving maternal health. No small feat, very ambitious. So we're going to go into a lot of detail about how you've come to found an organization, you know, just because you weren't busy enough with uh, your clinical load. But just briefly, what is the overall aim or mission for Health Volunteers International? First of all, thanks very much for having me, Neva. really appreciate your time. Overall, the big picture would be to improve maternal and perinatal mortality in sub-Saharan Africa generally, but specifically in northern Namibia. So essentially, you're looking to reduce the number of women and babies dying during childbirth, childbirth yep. or the immediate period afterwards? Correct. Cool. Yeah. And... Why were you motivated to start Health Volunteers International and to tackle this problem? Short version is that I realised that um, I guess I knew what I wanted to achieve, but I needed to work out how to make that achievable. And in order for it to be achievable, it needed to be sustainable. And so I thought if I can start a charity to help with the financial side of things, I I recognised early on that I can't do this on my own. I need a, a bigger team to help support me in this and the best team will be one that contains volunteers that are coming back time and again so we can build those relationships and earn that trust from the local uh, doctors and nurses that we're working with but I can't expect people to fork out thousands of dollars every year to come and help me with my passion so I thought if I can start a charity to make it financially sustainable so that we can at least try and contribute some small part of those expenses for these volunteers to enable them to come back again and again. That was sort of part of the plan to making this um, achievable over the long term. So essentially Health Volunteers International tries to go literally to 
the country um, you're focused on Namibia yes. and be there for a period of time to capacity build a local health service delivery. Yep. And so when volunteers would usually go, do they have some out-of-pocket expenses to go on these trips? They do. Yeah, they do. So at the moment, I mean, this is one of the things that I would like to change moving forward. But at the moment, um, for each volunteer, we go for two weeks at a time. Two weeks we've worked out is kind of a a good compromise. If we only go for one week, that's not enough to really have an impact. Clearly, we can make twice the impact in two weeks. But any more than that, and we start to cash in too many favours with our spouses and our families and our work (laughs) back here. So there's a bit of a balance where the wife will let me go for two weeks. (laughs) A month would be pushing it. So so we go for two weeks at each time. uh, And at the moment, the volunteers, each volunteer that comes pays for their flights and their accommodation, Mm -hmm. uh, which works out to be about, depending on how they travel and where they go, roughly three to four grand each. So it's a big investment. It is a big investment, yeah. And then on top of that, at the moment, the charity will cover the costs and the organisation of uh, work visas and the medical registration mm-hmm. and in-country transport. So once we're on site, the cost of the high cars and the minivans to get us from the hotel to the various hospitals and back. And that works out to be about $700 per volunteer per team yes that's for the very charity. that's not insignificant which is not insignificant either yeah so each know. trip is quite expensive yeah which then takes me to the point of why do it why are you trying to tackle this problem of mother and baby deaths in namibia you know i often ask myself that too uh it's a lot of work to do this but once every time i go back and i see uh women and children dying for no other reason than because they were pregnant and what often gets to me is that the reasons that they're dying are so fixable. You know, mm-hmm. it, it is not um, pie-in-the-sky stuff to try and be fixing this. It, it is such small differences that we can make that result in big outcomes to save women from dying. You know, it, it's as simple as that. I, don't, I just don't think people – I don't think women in particular should die for no other reason than because they're pregnant. That's fair enough, I agree. Yeah. <laughs> How did you come to – really even have the first idea of going to Namibia and thinking about tackling this problem? I know that your training is in anesthesia and you are specifically specialised in obstetrics, so maternal care, but how did you decide I'm going to go to sub-Saharan Africa and think about this problem in that context? Yeah, so there's no short answer to this question. It's been a sort of a confluence of events. It started way back when I was at medical school at Flinders and uh, we were encouraged to do electives anywhere around the world in our final year of medicine. And this for me was in um, 19, at the end of 1993, early 1994, I did an elective in trauma in Johannesburg, which was in the lead up to their first democratic election. So it was really quite a, an interesting and also a very violent time to be there and still a lot of hangovers from apartheid. And, and I think that really opened my eyes to the wider world and sort of triggered something in me that was kind of dormant in terms of that egalitarian, we should all be equal or should we or sure should all have equal access to our opportunities. And I didn't feel it right that because of someone's colour of their skin, they got treated differently and had different access to healthcare. And so that was kind of the seed. And then fast forward probably about 10, 12 years, when I'd finished my anaesthetic training, I finished in the UK and did some traveling through Africa on the way home and did some volunteer work in rural South Africa. And during that episode, I witnessed a mother die from eclampsia, which is a sort of a high blood pressure disease of pregnancy. 
uh, and she was just found unconscious at a bus stop um, and you know we managed to save the baby but she died a couple of days later in the intensive care unit and and that again was just another one of those formative moments for me that I thought you know that wouldn't happen in Australia uh, and it only happened because she didn't get access to the health care that she needed uh, and it shouldn't be that way if she'd have come to hospital it was only a very simple treatment or some observations or a cesarean section that could have saved her uh, and it seemed to me quite unfair you know it, it was fixable and so not long after that I came back to Tasmania and um, started working here at the Royal Hobart Hospital and one of my senior colleagues in the department had been doing similar work as this for a long time and he approached me and another colleague and said I have some colleagues in in Laos in Southeast Asia that have asked for help would you be interested in, in going to help and so we said sure you know we'll, we'll go across we had no idea what we were getting ourselves into uh, but my friend and colleague is a paediatric anaesthetist and I was an obstetric anaesthetist so we went to just do some teaching and we were just there for a week. Anyway, that was the beginning of a program that is still running. My, my colleague here at the Royal still does that annually um, to teach the anaesthesia providers in Laos to train them up, bring their standards up to speed a little bit more. And I did that from 2006 until about 2012, 2013 and I just started to think about I'm not sure that we're getting anywhere. You know, I'm really not sure that we're achieving anything um, and if we are how do we tell is this all just a waste of time and effort and it's it's such an imposition on the people that are receiving us because they often put all their doctors and nurses into these classrooms for us to teach them for a week that often the, the clinical work gets fallen behind while while they're listening to us and is that worth it so I thought okay well I need to sort of investigate this a little bit more and that then resulted in me taking time out and and picking up the family and we moved to Boston for a year to do a master's degree at Harvard and that's when I did my master's in public health with a focus on global health and it was during that time that I guess two things happened one is okay I need to do this completely different to the way we've been doing it in Laos I want to do it differently so that I can assess what we are achieving if anything uh, and I and what do I want to really achieve I really want to stop mothers from dying in childbirth so I want to focus on that and that resulted in me moving away from Laos and I think because of my earlier travels I'd always had this affinity with Africa and I wanted to get back to Africa and I had a contact when I was working in Boston that connected me with a doctor in rural Namibia uh, and he just connected us by email and, and I emailed this guy and said hey this is me this is some experience would you like some help and he emailed back straight away and said of course I'd like some help so we're on that in just a moment because it's set us up beautifully for the work you're taking on in Namibia and how you've gone about it You're listening to That's What I Call Science. My name's Dr. Neve Chapman and I'm joined by Dr. Andrew Ottaway, an anaesthetist and founder of Health Volunteers International. So we were talking about Andrew's very inspiring, I think anyway, I hope you do too, um, story of how he's come to find himself with the vocation of um, using his your skills to mm. go to Namibia and help prevent mother and baby deaths during childbirth, which I think is very admirable. You said that you're focusing on that outcome. You've essentially become more specific by doing your master's and wanted to really embed understanding whether or not you're having an impact or making it change and achieving the outcome that you want to. But one question that comes to mind for me is Namibia is pretty big. So why are you focusing or how are you going about choosing an area where you're going to focus your energies and how did you even go about picking an area? 
So as I was connected with this doctor in rural Namibia, he was to the east of the country, a couple of hours east of the capital near the border with Botswana. So I went out to visit him. My first trip was more like a reconnaissance, learning what their needs were and what they wanted from me and what I could try and provide. And and that then led to a second trip. I brought a, a friend of mine who's an obstetrician here in Hobart and the two of us went for a week. Leonard and I started looking at trying to start the research side of things. Did a, we did a, a needs assessment and we started a research project to try and look at some of the outcomes from uh, anesthesia care in Namibia. And then so and that then led to me travelling to other hospitals around the country where people had either participated in this needs assessment or contributed to our research project. I was trying to get to this little hospital that had started contributing to our research project that had to close because they had one doctor leave and they had to close the whole operating theatre at this hospital. So they'd started contributing to our research but then had to stop because they couldn't do any anaesthesia. And so I thought, well, I just want to go and suss this place out. And it was so small and remote and in the middle of nowhere, I couldn't get there. I I got as far as a large town that was nearby, which happened to have a large hospital. And I contacted a person that had contributed to our needs assessment. And so we met and it turns out he was an HIV doctor and I'm an anaesthetist and don't know anything about that. I can't do much help. (laughs) He said, oh, well, that's okay. But maybe I could introduce you to the anaesthetist in the hospital. And then it went from there. And so this was in a town called Oshakati. And as it happens, this hospital that I was at with the anaesthetist he was very keen for me to come and help uh, and contribute anything I could and this hospital happens to be the largest hospital in the country outside of the capital and outside of the capital is probably or certainly at that time the only place where doctors go to have in inverted commas training in obstetrics and gynecology and anaesthesia before they are then sent out to other parts of the country and so I thought okay if we're going to have an impact this is the bottleneck where we can really make an impact that will affect the whole countrywide provision of healthcare. That sounds really sensible. I also really like that you started by going and listening and by doing a needs assessment. So what types of things do you look at in a needs assessment? Generally speaking, what what facilities do they have? Do they have access to reliable electricity and clean running water? Do they have an operating theatre? Does it function? Do they, you know, what kind of surgery do they do at the operating theatre? When they have a bad outcome, do they reflect on that and look to try and work out the cause of the bad outcome and look for areas for improvement moving forward? Do they have any ongoing professional development or learning and would they like some? It was pretty much that kind of And did you do that by survey or did you do that like by going and observing or was it a combination? It was basically my my Namibian colleague Leonard uh, every year the Namibian Medical Council put on a national conference which which he went to and he just handed out this questionnaire to all the doctors in the room and they all filled it out and and that was sort of a a cross-section in a way randomized of of all the doctors around the around the country. Awesome so give us a little bit of a picture of maternal outcomes in Namibia maybe even compared to Australia or like why this seems like a really important area to tackle in this country. So I guess if we start with a little bit of data when we try to quantify maternal mortality we we look at the maternal mortality rate or ratio which we quote the number of maternal deaths for every 100,000 live births and a maternal death can happen up to six weeks after delivery in terms of this figure. In Australia I think it's about four or five Wow, per 100,000. Per 100,000, yeah. So we still do have some maternal deaths, but it's very low. In, in the United States, it's about 12. In Namibia, for example, the official rate is about 350, but the unofficial rate, so one of my earlier trips to Gobabis, 
with Leonard, uh, I met uh, a Dr. McKenzie, who's an inspiring uh, woman who's an obstetrician trained in the United Kingdom who married a Namibian and is now living in Namibia. And when I met her, she was running outreach teams to the district hospitals to try and provide a service, but also to teach and train the locals as well. And so obviously we we got chatting and she was running a survey. So in a, just to go back a step, in the United Kingdom and now in Australia, we run a triennial period. Any maternal death is investigated and every three years they produce a report as to what maternal deaths happened and what lessons we can learn from those. It's sort of a confidential inquiry into maternal and child health. She had been involved in that in the United Kingdom and tried to introduce that into Namibia to do the same thing. And she had just come to the completion of her first year of doing this and she'd found that her findings were the the official rate should be about 700 maternal deaths and unofficially she had also heard of other maternal deaths that hadn't made it into her report so unofficially the maternal mortality ratio for Namibia was about 800 that's on a par with Afghanistan South Sudan the worst places in the world there are very few places that are that are worse than that in terms of outcomes of maternal in terms of outcomes yeah wow and as it happens within Namibia some of the worst hospitals for maternal outcomes were in the far north where I had now started to establish a relationship and realised that that's where I needed to be in terms of that bottleneck of, of access to junior doctors. But now it also appeared that this is also the worst place to have a baby in Namibia. So we needed to do something about this. So why are the rates of mothers dying during or immediately after childbirth so bad in this area? What kind of things are contributing to that that obviously don't happen in Australia? So clearly this is a multifactorial type problem. There are lots of factors that contribute. But as an example, so we work now in this big hospital called Oshakati and from there we outreach to three district hospitals in the area. Uh, the closest is about 45 minutes away called Engela and then the other two would be an hour and a half to two and a half hours away by, by road. The two furthest hospitals can't do a caesarean section because they do they do have an operating theatre, they do have the equipment, they do have doctors trained to do a caesarean section, but they don't have anyone trained to give a safe anaesthetic. So, mm. And those two hospitals collectively do roughly 5,000 deliveries a year. So they have no obstetricians, just doctors that can do a caesarean section and no anaesthetists. So by comparison, the Royal Hobart Hospital here, which is the tertiary referral biggest hospital in Tasmania, we do about 2,000 deliveries here and about 500 uh, caesarean sections, I think off the top of my head. And they're doing how many? They're doing 5,000. Wow, okay. So more Can't than do a caesarean section. And so if they get a lady who, who has an obstructed labour, so the baby gets stuck, not coming out any other way, they effectively stick her in the back of an ambulance, send her two hours down the road. The baby will be dead by the time it gets to the hospital and often the mother is dead by that stage as well. Uh, and any other cause for needing an urgent caesarean section, whether it's bleeding, whether it's uh, eclampsia or having a seizure, it just doesn't happen. The third district hospital there we go to, that is actually only 45 minutes away, they can do caesarean sections. They do about 6,000 deliveries a year. So this is on a par with the Royal Women's Hospital, uh, King Edward in Perth, some of the biggest hospitals in Australia. They have Last time I was there anyway, they have one, in inverted commas, anaesthetist who is not formally trained. And from what I've seen with my own eyes, I hope this isn't broadcast in Namibia, but he's not very safe. Uh, uh-huh. it, a lot of work that needs to be done there. So so we now have three hospitals that do about 11,000 deliveries a year. Only half of them can get a cesarean section and that half is it isn't even safe to have that. So... Those are very harrowing numbers. But also that doesn't factor in that generally, am I right in thinking that when it comes to childbirth, probably women 
go a little bit later in the labour process than what we would maybe expect in Australia. But also there's very little during pregnancy care to yeah. know about complications or anticipate whether or not someone may need a cesarean, Exactly, for yeah. So the whole antenatal care even before they come into labour is just not comparable to what we do in Australia. So again, as an example, one of the problems that we're trying to deal with at the moment, when the women do present in early pregnancy, they don't get access to an ultrasound machine or an ultrasound scan. So the dates of the pregnancy are usually usually gone by the dates of the woman's last menstrual period, which is obviously notoriously unreliable. That's why we tend to prefer a scan here in Australia. But then when they get to the third trimester, they measure baby's growth with a tape measure from the top of the pubes to the top of the bump on the lady's tummy. And if there's a discrepancy between that distance measured on the measuring tape and what they think the baby should be by dates they assume that the woman's menstrual period, the dates were wrong. So as an example, you might have a lady who, who should be 38 weeks pregnant, but the baby's about the size of a 34-week pregnancy. They'll say, well, either the baby is small and the dates are right or the dates are wrong. Often they'll say, well, the dates are wrong. Go away and come back in a month and we'll do a check then. In a month, the date is actually 42 weeks and the baby's died when the baby when the mum comes back. And so they're not getting that quality of care to make those decisions about uh, fit or well-being, whether there's something we can do to improve the baby's growth during the pregnancy uh, or whether we should expedite delivery and do a caesarean section in a planned way when it's much safer. So those decisions along the way uh, is not there because they're not getting that quality or that standard of antenatal care that we have here in Australia. So am I right in thinking, Andrew, that it sounds like they do have operating theatres, but for example, they don't have a trained anaesthetist, yep. and then do they have access to an ultrasound, but again, no technical training in how to use it? Up, they now have access to ultrasounds. Just before COVID hit, we had donated one ultrasound machine to one of these district hospitals out in the region. Hospital, that brought their tally up to two, and that were the only two ultrasound machines for those three district hospitals doing 11,000 deliveries a year, and they only had one doctor that knew how to use it who ran a clinic one afternoon a week. Wow. So you can imagine how many times... A, the women are getting access to that. When we were there, we came across a lady who who had a stuck baby and needed a cesarean section at this hospital. And we were lucky enough that I was there and we had an obstetrician volunteer from Adelaide. So we could provide an anaesthetic, we could do the cesarean section. And this woman had had an ultrasound by this doctor. She'd been lucky enough to have the ultrasound. And when we did the caesar, we delivered twins and the ultrasound hadn't made any mention of twins. They just thought there was only one baby in there. So even when they do get access to the ultrasound, it's not necessarily reliable or that quality. Now they do have the machines. Uh, The government have started a program to donate them but they have told me they don't know how to use them and they want us to come and teach them how to use them. And then also when to use them. And then also what to do with the decisions based on the finding of the ultrasound. It's one thing to use it, but it's another thing to know what to do with that knowledge and information. Wow. To me, it sounds almost overwhelming, the scope to improve things and to improve the quality of care. I mean, I find it phenomenal when we talk about improving care in Australia, we're talking about minuscule percentage, yes. whereas here it's literally you could almost do anything. So yeah. what what are you hoping to do in the next couple of years? What have you identified as the next steps in terms of implementing some capacity building initiatives? Yep. And then also how, like, how are you going to measure whether or not they're effective? So to answer your first question, our, our, our priorities are, number one, these two district hospitals that can't provide caesarean sections, we need to get those operating theatres reopened. And that involves training up a medical officer to be able to give a safe anaesthetic. To put in some perspective, when I finished my medical training um, and did two years as a junior doctor and was allowed to start training, I then did 
I'd actually did six years of anaesthetic training before I was allowed to be called a specialist and before I was allowed to operate independently. I'm hoping to teach one of their guys to do a spinal in two weeks. Wow. Clearly not all of my colleagues are on board with this. <laughs> and so one of the reasons why I'm very keen to track the data is that I want to make sure that um, by reopening operating theatre and having someone give an anaesthetic at a very basic level that we are not making it worse for those women, that we are not inadvertently causing more harm because he's not safe and not qualified. So my first priority is to train someone to give a spinal anaesthetic and do it safely so that we can reopen these operating theatres so that the women don't have to die on the back of an ambulance in childbirth. Our second priority is to teach the local doctors how to use these ultrasound machines and then collectively working with them and with the Namibian government, making a plan for what we do about this. Because at the moment, the Namibian government government isn't keen for the district hospitals to provide elective caesarean sections because they recognise that it's not safe. But if we start doing ultrasounds and diagnosing sick babies that would have otherwise died, we need to start increasing our caesarean section rates and we need to have a discussion with the government about what that looks like for them. And, And again... I think that also ties back to how our research and our collecting of the data is so important because if we can say to the government that we're we're killing less women, we, we need less ambulances because we're sending fewer women down the road to hospitals where they die, we're saving you money that you can then put into opening your operating theatre and providing a caesarean section. So I think we need to have the data that we can then talk the language of money that the government understands. How we collect that data... I'm not too sure yet. I'm hoping you'll help me with that. (laughs) Of course. I'm so keen to. So last thing, Andrew, if people are listening at home and are saying, how can I help? Where can they go and what can they do to help you? So I think two things. One is would just be the standard money. Uh, (laughs) If if, uh, spread the word, any help that we can get that's financially oriented is just uh, huge and amazing. Uh, So we have a website, uh, www.com healthvolunteers.org and there is a donate button on there you are able to donate uh, and so even if it's just 10 bucks that's just would be fantastic for us it really does go a long way at the moment all the day-to-day expenses for the charity are covered out of my pocket so any donations that we receive are quarantined and set aside just to get volunteers on the ground in Namibia they don't get wasted in paying the internet fees and all the rest of it second thing is that One plan that I really would like to do, if I'm spending two weeks training someone to give spinal anaesthetic, I think that there's a lot of groundwork that can be done before we get there. And so I'm really keen to write some sort of an online learning teaching module that they can work through that gives them that foundation of knowledge, the theory about spinal anaesthetic so that then we hit we can then hit the ground running with them clinically and work with them to actually do it on patients. So if anyone out there has some sort of IT knowledge or skills writing with online learning, you might be willing to help us turn that concept into a reality. I would absolutely love to hear from you. Awesome. Thanks so much. What an inspiring episode, folks. Uh, You've been listening to That's What I Call Science. We love bringing you anything science related and really hope you enjoyed the show. I think it was a little bit different to our usual style, but I certainly enjoyed it. You can get in touch with us on social media. Just search That's What I Call Science. And during this episode, we will be sharing some images from Andrew's uh, work and also sharing some more information about how you can get involved to support his work in the future. Until next time, that's it from me, Dr. Neve Chapman. And once again, I'd like to thank my expert guest, Dr. Andrew Ottaway, and I'd also like to thank Olivia Holloway for her prep work on the episode. This program was made possible with support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Find out more at cbf.org.au. You've been listening to That's What I Call Science, brought to your station and across the nation via the Community Radio Network. 
You can find That's What I Call Science at all major podcast streaming services and social media platforms. Like and subscribe for on-demand science updates from the team. That's What I Call Science is proudly recorded in Tasmania at Edge Radio. Head to edgeradio.org.au for more information on how you can support community radio. GemMaker are a proud sponsor of That's What I Call Science. GemMaker provide expert advice, services and training to commercialise new knowledge and technologies. Go to gemmaker.com.au for more information.